Shalom. This is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Maim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu, Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avinu Machinu, our Father and King, Father, we praise you and thank you for this holy Shabbat, for this opportunity to gather together as Mishpacha's family to worship before you. Father, I pray that you bring a unity of heart and mind as we uh, await your Ruach HaKodesh this morning, your Holy Spirit, as we await in our lives. I pray that you speak through me and use me. Let your words flow forth. Let your heart be felt today and let nothing of me be involved except that which you choose to use. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray and everyone says, Amen. All right, today we are in Parsha Pinchas um, from Numbers chapter 25, uh, verse 10 is where it begins. Um, we are going to be looking at a couple of things here that all kind of come together in one conglomeracy of a very, very, very important spiritual idea. Um, and everybody remember the, the story of Pinchas? I mean, we actually begin reading about it last week. Um, with his actual actions at the end of Parsha Balach, and then we move forward into this week, and we see the fruit that comes forth from those actions. So if you have your scriptures, open up to Numbers chapter 25, beginning with verse 1. In Parsha Balach, if you remember, uh, the uh, Moabites and Midianites teamed up to try and curse Israel. Balaam was brought by Balach, who was a king, to try and curse Israel because he knew he couldn't beat them in the physical unless there was some sort of breakthrough in the spiritual. And so Balak brings Balaam. Balaam is supposed to be this prophet of the Lord Most High, and he's obviously got an evil inclination about the way he goes about doing things. And so he comes and he uh, tries to, to curse Israel. Instead, God only allows blessing to come forth from his mouth, including one of the most central prayers of Judaism that we say at the beginning of our service here. And in many uh, Orthodox Jewish homes, it's said, and, and synagogues, it's said every day at the beginning of the day in the prayer service, and that's the Matzavu. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your tabernacles, O Israel, right? Uh, and it actually comes from an individual who intended to curse us, his blessings come back from Adonai, and we take that and put it in our daily service, our weekly service, as a reminder of the strength, the might, the power of God to bring forth his faithfulness no matter what. And so this week we're reading about a little bit of a different ending to that story. It seems like it ends all happy-go-lucky, uh, that the, the curses became a blessing and nothing bad came from it until the Midianite women and the Moabites come in and seduce the Israelites to uh, worshiping, worshiping Baal, which is their, uh, their gods, and also to um, having sex with them. Uh, and in essence, in Baal worship, that's actually a form of worship. So they become, uh, uh, they fall prey to paganism. So in, in Numbers chapter 25, verse 1, this is the end of last week's Parsha, we really read the beginning of the narrative of what we're seeing in this week. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the people began to have immoral sexual relations with women from Moab. Then they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, so the people were eating and bowing down before their gods. Now these are little g-gods, not Adonai. When Israel became bound to Baal Peor, and that's an interesting way that it's worded there, when they became bound to Baal Peor, all right? I want you to understand, in the spiritual realm, and we talked about this last week, in the spiritual realm, it's not just a matter of, okay, I did something random, now I can go on about my life, but we actually open up doors in our lives for the enemy to have strongholds, 
and we become bound to particular sinful activities. And in this case, it's paganism. So it says that they, uh, they uh, became bound to Baal Peor, to the, uh, the god Baal. The anger of Adonai grew hot against uh, Israel. Adonai said to Moses, seize all the ringleaders and hang them before Adonai facing the sun so that Adonai's fierce anger may be turned away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill your men and, uh, who have been joining themselves to Baal Peor. Then behold, a man from Bede Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his brothers before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Bene Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, uh, son of Aaron, the Kohen, saw it, he arose from the midst of the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced them through both the Israelite man and the woman's belly. Then the plague of, of, uh, among Ben Israel was stopped. However, 24,000 were dead because of the plague. Right? 24,000 Israelites died because they chose to fall prey to the, the temptation of the enemy. Now, I want you to understand something, right? And this is the end of last week's part, just setting us up for this week. We spoke last week about there being two uh, kind of wars going on uh, for our souls, especially spiritually, right? You've got the spiritual war that's happening that God is fighting on our behalf. And that's what we see in the, the image of, ba uh, of Balaam uh, trying to curse Israel, God not allowing him to curse Israel, the blessings coming forth no matter what, right? There was this attempt in the spiritual realm because Balak knew that he could not defeat Israel in the physical because God had a spiritual uh, uh, victory for them already. So he wanted to try and curse them spiritually because that was the only way that he thought he could win a victory against them. So he attacks them spiritually with the, the attempt to at curse him. That falls through. It doesn't work. All right? Now we find out later in the book of Numbers, and ultimately mentioned several times in the, the scriptures, we find out later that the incident we're dealing with now, where the Midianite women and the Moabites were luring Israel into worshiping, worshiping Baal through sexual relations, what we realize is who's responsible for this. All right? The very same person who wanted to curse Israel but couldn't, because he could only speak the words of Adonai, Balaam, He's the one that ends up pitching this idea to Balak, to the Midianites. And he says, hey, you know, you guys, uh, you guys could actually beat them if you realize that there's the spiritual war and then there's the spiritual world and the world war and the physical, all right? They may not be able to be cursed because of God in the spiritual realm, but in the physical realm, we could absolutely curse them because they are willing to fall prey to temptation. They're humans, they're going to fall prey to temptation. And so he tells them about the, uh, the idea of luring them into worshiping the Baalim through sexual relations with the Midianite women, uh, and so on and so forth. So this is where we find ourselves. And so we have this man of Israel who brings in this princess, if you would, of, of Midian, brings her in right in front of everybody. I mean, he's right in front of the tabernacle. He's right in front of the priest. He's right in front of Moses. He has no care whatsoever of who's seeing what. He doesn't even wait for the door on his tent to shut before he's doing his business. And, uh, and so Pinchas, Phineas, in English, rushes in with a spear in this angry, righteous zealousness. And he rushes in with a spear and he jams a spear through both of them and he kills them. And this is where we pick up at this week with Parsha Pinchas in verse 10 of chapter 25. It says, Then I spoke to Moses, saying, Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the Cohen, has turned away my anger from Ben Israel, because he was very zealous for me among them, so that I did not put an end to Ben Israel in my zeal. Now remember, what's he mean by the he turned away his anger? Right? What was it God told Moses to do? 
He said to kill everyone and to hang them, everyone involved, and to hang them facing the sun. In other words, facing the east, hang them so that everybody could see and have a reminder of what's going on, right? A reminder of what happens when you turn your back on God. So he stayed this, uh, this, this particular uh, punishment that was on them because of the zeal of this individual named Phineas. So now say, see, I am making with him a covenant of shalom covenant of peace. It will be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for his God and atoned for B'nai Israel. Now, Pichas, the son of Eleazar. Eleazar is the one who becomes high priest after Aaron, right? So if he's the son of the son of the high priest and the priesthood runs through that lineage anyways, it kind of makes sense that Pichas would become the priest, right? So why was it so important that God was saying the priesthood is yours? And he was making an everlasting covenant with this particular individual, right? So first we see the similar covenant made with Aaron. Now we're seeing the covenant made with Pinchas, with Phineas. And he says, because of your zeal, because of your willingness to serve me above all else, because of your willingness to put me first no matter what, you will be, your lineage will be the high priest forever. This is a covenant I'm making with you that you will be the Kohen Gadol, the high priest forever. All right, now it's understood that he should have become high priest anyways because he was, or we assume so. We don't know for sure whether he was the firstborn. It doesn't say he was. Theoretically, the firstborn would be the one that would become the high priest. Now, we do know scripturally that God sometimes likes to, to kind of mess with that firstborn thing to get a point across, right? And so here we have Pinchas, whether or not he was the firstborn, the scripture doesn't tell us, but it does tell us that God makes a specific covenant with him, which tells me that there's something more to the story, and he likely was not the firstborn. And because of that, needed this covenant to become the priest. Now, along with that, tradition says that Pinchas was already uh, a, basically an adult by the time the anointing of the priesthood was put upon Aaron and his sons, and that he wasn't actually anointed in the priesthood because it was only Aaron and his immediate sons who received the anointing, but he was Aaron's grandson, so he wasn't there uh, in the, you know, he was, he was alive, but he wasn't actually receiving that anointing. So that anointing had to been put on him uh, in the same way that it was upon uh, Aaron and his sons. So that's the traditional look. My view is it's likely that he wasn't the firstborn and that, that covenant was necessary. But where did the covenant come from? What was the point to the covenant? The reason the covenant was given to him to be the priest, to be the, not only the grandson of the priest, but to become the priest himself and his children to be the priest, the reason that covenant was put there was because of his zeal. Now, I want you to understand, in Hebrew, the word for zeal is the exact same word for jealousy. But there's a distinct difference, because zeal is a righteous type of jealousy. Jealousy is, if somebody was flirting with my wife, odds are I would probably put them on their butt, out of jealousy, all right? It's just a bottom line. Uh, I'm human. I am not going to put up with that. I'm going to lay somebody out. So that would, be, that would be jealousy. That's not necessarily a righteous jealousy, although there could be a degree of righteousness in protecting my wife and so on. But it's not a righteous zeal like what Pinchas had, right? Now, Pinchas killed somebody, just outright stabbed two people right through the gut uh, with a spear. That seems pretty harsh, right? But the reason he did that was because he loved God so much that he couldn't fathom Israel being destroyed because of this sin that's now plaguing the nation. Now, you've got to understand, at the end of last week's Parsha, we read that 24,000 died because of this single sin, because of this single action, not just uh, the Simeonite sin, but the sin of falling prey to the temptation of the Baalim and what was happening there. So uh, chapter 26, 
Uh, verse 1 says, After the plague, Adonai said to Moses and Eleazar, son of Aaron, the Kohen, saying, Take a head count of the entire community of Bnei Israel, sons 20 years old and upward by their ancestral houses, all who, can, all who can serve in Israel's army. So Moses and Eleazar, the Kohen, spoke with them uh, on the Moabite plains by the Jordan across the, from Jericho, saying, Just as Adonai commanded Moses, a census will be taken of all men of Bnei Israel who came out of Egypt from 20 years up and upwards. And then we scroll through all of the names and numbers, and we move on to verse 63. Um, these were numbered by Moses and Eleazar the Kohen when they counted B'nai Israel on the plains of the Moab, uh, of, of Moab across from Jericho. Not one of them was among the, those counted by Moses and Aaron the Kohen when they counted B'nai Israel in the Sinai wilderness, because Adonai had said they would surely die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left except Caleb son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. The action of Pinchas, of Phineas, was a necessary action on two parts. First and foremost, it showed that there was still a passion, a zeal, a love for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even if it was only a remnant of Israel that had this love for him. All right? The second part is 24,000 had to die because it was the last 24,000 left of the first generation that had to die. All right? The scripture says, God said that the, uh, the, to, to Israel that the entire first generation that left Egypt, except for Joshua and Caleb, had to die in the wilderness, right? Because of their sin. Now, they lived a good long life. They just didn't get to experience and taste the blessings of the promised land, the blessings of their inheritance, the blessings of, of experiencing the land of milk and honey because of their sin, because they denied the land when they were supposed to go in. So this generation is now done. So we read at the very beginning of the book of Numbers the counting of the nation of Israel after coming out of Egypt, and now at the very end, or towards the very end, we're reading of the counting 40 years later. All right, now I want you to, there's, there's so much importance to the realization that this has now been 40 years that has passed. Israel is now at the Jordan River in essence, all right? They are, they're, they're at the base. Remember I said last week that one of the mountains that uh, that uh, Balaam prophesied from, that he spoke blessing from, was the same mountain that Moses would die on, that was Mount Nebo. Um, and so they're at the base of this mountain. As a matter of fact, later in this Parsha, in Parsha Pinchas, God tells Moses, hey, this is the mountain you're going to go up and you're going to die up there. So you need to pick somebody uh, to be the leader after you and the person's going to be Joshua and you need to place your mantle upon him and he will receive the anointing to lead Israel into the promised land. All right? Now, why is it Joshua got to be that person? Because he had the same righteous zeal that Pinchas had. If you remember when the nations, when the, the 12 spies of the nation came back from the promised land, they brought back an evil report, 10 of them did, and two, Joshua and Caleb had the zeal enough for the Lord, the love enough for the Lord to say, hey, ignore what they're saying. We got to go now. The land is exactly as God said, and we can take it. Let us not be afraid. Let's not fall prey. And again, that's a spiritual battle. All right, we've talked all morning about an understanding, an adequate and accurate understanding of our identity in the Lord. And the identity in the Lord was one of victory. It was one where God said, I am giving you these promises. They are yours. All you have to do is walk in them. There was never a point in time where God said, if you have the faith to do this, if you can just cur muscle up the courage enough to go, he said, this is yours. Just walk in it, right? And if we notice as Israel goes into the promised land, a lot of times we weren't really so good at just walking in it still, even though this was second generation and they witnessed all the mistakes of their forefathers and they saw everything that happened, we weren't really so good at it. But the blessing was in walking in what God said he was going to do. It was in that obedience factor, that trusting, and that flows from an idea of righteous zeal, 
of love and passion for God so strong and so mighty that we're willing to put it all on the line. Now, Pinchas, there's no way for him to know that there wasn't going to be a riot when he jammed the spear through this guy's back, right? This was one of the heads of the tribe of Simeon. It wasn't just some Joe Schmo from down the street. This was one of the big dogs of the nation of Israel. He had no way of knowing there wasn't going to be a riot and his neck was going to be hung on a noose. He had no way of knowing that. All he knew is he wanted to defend the honor of God among the people. And so he rushes in and he, he jams the spear through them and he slaughters them. And because of that, the plague that was upon Israel was stopped and the nation is able to go forth into the promised land. And what we read from here is we move in uh, two weeks into Parsha Devarim is the recounting of everything that happened to Israel right before they go into the promised land. Joshua, the righteous zeal, is what brought about his ability to lead Israel. Caleb, he got uh, part of the, uh, a better part of inheritance in the midst of Judah. Why? Because of his righteous zeal before God. We read in our Haftorah Parsha this week about Elijah. And Elijah thinks after he's killed a whole bunch of the prophets at Baal, uh, and every, again, Baal comes up again, as he's, he's uh, gone through all of this happening, and, and he thinks he's the last one, last prophet remaining. He thinks the last person that serves God. How many of us feel that way in this world, right? We've got to be one of the last ones left that actually cares about God, right? That, I mean, you look at the world around us. The world is dilapidating. It is falling apart. And as a believer, we go, come on, am I really? Is this, is this it? Is there nobody else? And a lot of times we get left in that mindset of thinking we're the only ones. And so here's Elijah who thinks he's the only one left. Nobody else is left among Israel who hasn't bowed their knee to Baal. And so he's uh, running away from everything God leads him to. Anybody know where Mount Horeb is? It's also known as Mount Sinai, right? So God leads him to the very place that he revealed himself to the nation. Elijah, I mean, it's funny how God does this. As a matter of fact, we see Paul in Galatians. He talks about how he goes back to Sinai. Paul is led back to Sinai, and that's where he spends three years getting to know the Lord through Messiah as opposed to the Lord that he's always known through uh, Pharisaic Judaism. So here in verse 9 of chapter 19 of 1 Kings, it says, When he arrived there at the cave, he spent the night there. Then behold, the word of Adonai came to him, and he said to him, where, What are you doing here, Elijah? And I kind of picture, I mean... I read scripture and I see that God's got a sense of humor. He can be kind of sarcastic sometimes. He's like, dude, what are you doing here? All right? I'm putting my own emphasis, but that's the way I picture God having this conversation because I've kind of had these conversations in my life with God. He's like, dude, seriously, what are you, what are you doing here? And so he says in verse 10, I have been very zealous for Adonai Zavot, for the Lord Most High. He says, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, turned down your altars, torn down your altars, and slain your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left. And they are seeking my life to take it. Verse 11, then he said, come out and stand on the mount before Adonai. Behold, Adonai was passing by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and shattering cliffs before Adonai. But Adonai was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but Adonai was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake was a fire, but Adonai was not in the fire. After the fire, there was a soft whisper of a voice. As soon as Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face and his mantle, went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then all of a sudden, a voice addressed him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah says, I have been very zealous for Adonai Zavod, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and slain your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they are seeking to take my life. Verse 15, then Adonai said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazael, king of Aram, and uh, Jehu, son of Nimshi, 
king of Israel, uh, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Abal-Meholah, uh, as prophet in your place. It shall come to pass that whoever escapes from the sword of Hazael, uh, Jehu will slay, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will slay. Yet I preserved 7,000 in Israel whose knees have not bowed to Baal and whose mouth has not kissed him. Pinchas thought he was the only one. Thought he was the only one that had the heart enough to stand for God. Elijah, or Elijah, sorry, rather, thought he was the only one that thought that he was standing for God. He was the only one that thought he had the heart to serve the Lord still, and that all the rest of Israel had turned their backs on him. Now, as believers, we can look at the world around us, and, and in many cases, we can look at the body around us, the body of Messiah. And day in and day out, I kind of get the same feeling. Sometimes maybe we're the only ones that truly serve the Lord, that are truly giving our heart to Him, right? I mean, how many denominations are we seeing that are having splits over things like uh, same-sex marriages or splits over uh, positions on abortion or splits over um, things like positions on Israel, whether or not to, to boycott, divest, and, and put sanctions on Israel and backing their support off of Israel or divesting or, divesting or, or, or splits that are happening in the body over whether or not Yeshua is truly the only way to the Father. Very core foundational belief in the scriptures. Yeshua is the only way to the Father. And there are pastors that preach others many ways. Yeshua is just one of them. Right? These are quote-unquote pastors. Leaders in the body of Messiah, they're spouting stuff like this. That's not scriptural. You can't prove it in the scriptures. And a lot of times as believers, we look around the world uh, that we live in and we go, well, are we the only ones left? Are we Elijah? Are we the only one left without bowing our knee to the enemy? Are we the only one left that has the courage to stand up for the Lord? But I want you to understand, even in the world that we live in today, we haven't seen the beginning. We've barely touched what's waiting for us. Things are going to get worse. We're in a day and age where the body Messiah needs to learn the meaning of a true righteous seal for the Lord. And I don't mean grabbing a spear and going ramming it through somebody, all right? Uh, when, I, when I was a, uh, in middle school and high school, but when I was in middle school and high school in the 90s, I remember looking at the news and almost it seemed like on a weekly basis, some quote-unquote Christian was blowing up an abortion clinic, throwing pipe bombs and such into abortion clinic, uh, clinics to try and, and stop them from performing abortions, right? Because clearly righteous zeal for the Lord is to, to slaughter an entire group of people. For, for no apparent reason whatsoever, except you dislike what they're doing. That's, that's clearly the way things are supposed to be done in a uh, world that we live in today, right? I disagree with that. I am one of the mindset that, hey, you know, imagine if we had the kind of zeal where we actually stood up for the Lord day to day in our own life in a way that people actually saw the Lord through us. And because of that, we reach people's hearts and lives before they fall prey to sin. Or as they're in the midst of sin, they're drawn out before they fall prey to worse sin, right? How about instead of blowing up abortion clinics, we reach the hearts of young men and women before they get into that position? How about instead of fighting against same-sex marriages, which we've already lost, what if we were living a life and an example that shined the light in people's lives, that it changed them? Not changed law, 
not effect law, but we actually change their lives. And the Spirit of God moves on them and their hearts are changed and it's no longer an issue. Right? We like, as believers, we like to, the body of Messiah, we like to rally against particular sins, individual sins. Mainly because I think, in all honesty, if we rally against, if we can all come together against this one issue, maybe we'll forget about our own sins over here. Right? Maybe if we rally against homosexuality, we won't, we won't think about the pornography addictions that, rave, that are ravenous in the body of Messiah. But aren't those both sexual immorality? Right? Or, or how many pastors' names were on that Ashley Madison list? They got busted having adultery. Some of them even worked with organizations that stood for family rights, believing-based family rights. And yet there are their names destroying their own families. What if as believers we had a righteous zeal enough that, I don't know, we actually lived like believers. We actually let the Spirit of God lead our lives. We actually wholly and completely trusted in the redemption and salvation that God has brought us through the person of Yeshua. What if we actually surrendered our lives to Him? And we surrender our lives to Him in a way that through the fact that we are completely and wholly devoted to Him, that people's lives are changed just because they see what God's done in ours. You've heard me say it before, we do not live in a world where preaching the gospel will make a single difference. They have to see the Lord in our lives before they ever hear the words come out of our mouth. I remember when I was uh, in my early 20s working at O'Charlie's over in Mobile, uh, waiting tables, and there was this group of, uh, there, there was this big group, it was probably, I guess, 40 or 50 kids that came in pretty much every week. Uh, I think it was on like a Sunday evening they came in, and it was a uh, Assemblies of God church choir, uh, youth church choir that would come in. And I mean, really cool kids. I, you know, we would, I would speak with them from time to time if they happened to be in my section, and they knew I was messianic. They liked to ask questions and all. But I remember this one particular night, all right, that they come in, and they had just finished with their practice. They came in every week after practice. And they came in, and, and for whatever reason, they, they just started singing one of the songs they were working on at, at uh, choir practice at church. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. I mean, you could hear it through the whole place. I mean, everybody heard this song. And without missing a beat, they immediately, when they finished that song, without missing a second, they immediately started singing a song from Eminem, which is a rapper who's not necessarily the most wholesome person in the world. His music's definitely not the most wholesome in the world, and... Uh, and they start singing this, you know, this song. And my immediate thought was, and, and, and that's not to say that I didn't also listen to stuff like that, all right? But my immediate thought was, how do we go from shining the light to singing a song that does nothing but spread more darkness? Because if you listen to his lyrics, his lyrics are nothing but about reveling in the garbage that's happened in his life over the years. And the direction and path his life has gone since then. How do we go from singing about the Lord to singing something uh, that's completely contrary to anything about the Lord? All right? And that's not to beat up on a genre of music. That's just to say, look, we can't have it both ways. We've got to live lives that shine the light of Messiah. The problem with the body of Messiah, one of the major problems with the body of Messiah today is that for the most part, there is no way to tell the difference between a believer and a non-believer at all. You drive past most churches and, and even Messianic synagogues today, 
uh, when they're having services and it's hard to tell who's stepping out of a house of God or who's walking out of a club on Friday night. You talk to most believers today and it's hard to tell who actually strives to live for God and who believes in God for fire insurance. God has called us to put everything aside. He's called us to walk in a a way and a life that is set apart, that is righteous and holy, in a way that people look to us and want what we have, in a way that very often makes our lives more difficult here and now because what's awaiting us is so much more greater. All right? Luke chapter 14, verse 25. says, Now great crowds were traveling with Yeshua, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. If you pay attention, Matthew 5, Yeshua says, if you've even hated somebody, you've already committed the sin of murder in your heart, right? So clearly he doesn't mean hate. But what's he mean? He's talking about righteous zeal. He says, you've got to be willing to give up everything to follow me. Not worry about what your friends and family think. Not worry about what the world around you thinks. Not worry about what your coworkers or your uh, uh, fellow students uh, think of you. Not worry about what the political sphere says about you or what uh, anything like that says. In order to follow him, you've got to be willing to put it all on the line. Pinchas, put it all on the line. He had no way of knowing he wasn't then going to be killed by an angry mob who was upset because of this, right? They wanted to hang Joshua and Caleb just for supporting God and saying, let's go take the land, right? Yet here, God says, we have to be willing to give up everything. As a Jewish believer, I have a pretty good grasp on this. Some of you know my family's story. My father, when he became a believer, my family disowned him. I grew up basically not knowing my family all that well, my extended family. I didn't really get to know my, gra- my grandparents until just after or just before I got married. I got married uh, in 2001, and just before that, I really got to know my grandma. I mean, I knew them, I met them, and spent time with them here and there throughout the years. But like when I was a baby, my grandfather told my dad, if you'll just deny Messiah, if you'll deny Yeshua and walk away from all that Jesus stuff, I'll buy you a house, I'll make sure you get a good job, I'll get you a good car, uh, and it'll all be yours if you just walk away from all that. And my dad refused to do it. And I grew up in a world where my family didn't understand us, my family disowned us, my family didn't want anything to do with us. But we walked faithfully in a righteous zeal for the Lord, and I watched my grandparents become believers before they died. I watched my great-grandparents become believers before they died. My uncle and his wife and their two children are, are all believers. Their daughters are married to ministers. My aunt is a, a believer. I think my uncle's kind of teetering. He's back and forth again. But, uh, and then the rest of my family, my dad has now done weddings and funerals and so on. He's the family rabbi. Um, you know, the, the family has a wedding. They ask him to come and do it. Families are from, they ask him to come and do it. They know he's messianic, and they're okay with it. But it's because we walked fervently for God no matter what. And as a kid, I had a hard time understanding. Now looking back at my life, I pray my kids see me have the courage enough to be willing to put it all on the line for Yeshua. This is what God has asked of us, just to be willing to put it all on the line. And if we do... 
The reward is so much greater, and I'm not talking just the reward for us and what's awaiting us in the Alam Haba, the world that's to come, heaven. I'm talking about the impact we have on the world around us. When people see God in our lives, when they see the power of the living God of all creation moving in our lives, it breaks down strongholds and barriers. It softens their hearts to see and to know and to receive Yeshua. It softens their hearts so that when the doors are open for us to minister to them, they're ready and willing to listen. They may not accept immediately, but they're at least willing to listen. We can at least get them to maybe. If you can get somebody to maybe, you've done the hard work. For some of you coming out of churches, you've experienced now in recent years some of the same things I experienced most of my life. Because you can jump ship from a Baptist church and become non-denominational and your family will still be all right. You'll still show up for Sunday dinner around the table over a big uh, spiral ham and everybody will be okay with that. They may not like a couple of things, but they'll be all right with it. But you go to a Messianic synagogue, all of a sudden you're going under the law, you're going, uh, your, your works for salvation instead of the faith of Yeshua, the blood of Yeshua. All of a sudden you're joining a cult. You've got to be careful, those Messianics are a cult, Right? We are called to put it all on the line, to being willing to give up everything. God doesn't want us to legitimately and literally hate our family, but he wants us to be willing to be hated by our family. He doesn't want us to be hated, but he wants us to be willing to be hated. And not just our family, but our friends, our coworkers. He wants us to be that strange guy that everybody wonders what in the world they're talking about, right? When you're at work, he wants us to be the people that people go, Dude's weird. Like, he's, it's one of these Jesus freak people, and I don't understand that. Like, that's just weird. But he wants that from us because it's when people are looking at our lives. And I mean, you've got to understand the world we live in, they're not, they're not looking at our lives like they used to, where we could talk the talk and get away with not walking the walk. Now they're actually looking at our lives. They want to see a righteous zeal flow from us before they ever hear us open our mouths. Because the world around us is dark. It's missing one thing that we have and that we've been commanded to share with the world around us. Hope. We carry that hope. We carry a restoration of identity as a creation of the God of all creation. That's what you and I have been anointed with the blood of the Lamb to do. And it's our jobs to walk faithfully in it. One of the things that's beautiful, absolutely beautiful about submitting our lives to Scripture and living Scripture out day to day is that people see us make real decisions. It may seem weird to somebody why I would pass up the bacon on a cheeseburger or why I would pass up pepperoni on a pizza. They may not understand it, but they see me making a definitive choice in my relationship with the Lord. They may not understand why I go to services on Saturdays instead of Sundays, but they see me make a definitive choice. I'm not doing something just because my parents have always done it. They see us make a definitive choice. So the question I have for you, are you willing to be Pinchas? Are you willing to be Elijah? Are you willing to be Elisha? 
Are you willing to be the disciples who Yeshua merely called forth and they laid everything down and walked away from everything they ever knew in order to follow him? Are you willing to be Abraham, to be Paul? Are you willing to be Stephen, literally looking death in, its, in your face and still living by a righteous zeal for the Lord where nothing else matters but seeing people see the Lord in you? Because this is what the day and age we live in today requires of disciples of Yeshua. And once you understand, we're not just believers in Yeshua. We believe in him. We accept salvation through him. But we're called to be disciples of Yeshua. Disciple is one who strives to emulate the person they follow. One who strives to be like that person. And Yeshua laid it on the line every single day. All the way up to the day that he was nailed to the stake. Peter was a disciple. All the way up till the day that he was hung upside down on a stake, he emulated his Messiah. Are we willing to lay it all on the line to have a righteous seal for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? To truly trust in the blood atonement of Messiah and the great commission that we have been called to be a part of. Avrahamim, Father of mercies. We may not understand entirely the depth of what you have called us to be. But Father, we're willing to dive in. We're willing to give it our all and we're willing to lay it all on the line for you. We recognize that you gave your only begotten son that we could have eternal life in your midst. And all you've asked for in return is for us to cry out in repentance and to walk as disciples of Yeshua. Father, continue to draw us into your presence. Continue to pour your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit upon us. Continue to breathe mightily and powerfully in us and give us the strength, the courage, and the endurance to stand firm for you, walking in a righteous zeal before you. Teach us the difference between jealousy and zeal. Father, begin to humble our hearts even now, each and every one of us. Even now, begin to humble our hearts that will set aside our pride, our desires to be liked, so that we can ultimately shine the light of Messiah before all men. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen.